Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preacher's contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Godsplaining. I'm Father Patrick Mary Briscoe, joined today by Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. We're both here in Washington, D.C., uh, united by the interwebs across the House of Studies which is a kind of big house. So, you know, it's not super convenient to walk from his office to mine. I'm on Michigan Avenue and he's in the back corner. Uh, so I guess this makes sense. But it is, in fact, the easiest way for us to record uh, and give you the fine quality audio and video that our podcast is quickly <laughs> becoming known for. That's right. Yeah, not so much content, but that, but that really, you know, that, that digital, that tech, high tech, progressive tech kind of stuff. That's us. Mm -hmm. That's our special, yeah. our special sauce. Yeah. People that's recognize right. that. And they say that is the Dominican fathers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we're here, uh, at, you know, approaching the end of the Advent season. Christmas is swiftly upon us. And in fact, by the time you listen to this episode, it may very well be Christmas. Um, Father Jacob Bertrand, do you have any last minute tips for getting ready for Christmas? Um, make sure that the eggnog is spiked and that the tree is trimmed. <laughs> uh, but seriously, I don't know. That's a good question. It, it, whenever the, the sort of like high holy days, as it were, you know, the Triduum Christmas are like right upon us. It's kind of like, I, I always think that like, well, that was Advent, even though there are still a couple of days after like that was Lent, it kind of was all right, you know, sort of, mm -hmm. but yeah, I, and that's not the the greatest way to approach things. It's sort of throwing the towel a couple of days before. But um, I think with one, one of the awesome things about Christmas um, in particular is the way by which the liturgy is set. So um, I think we might have talked about this in one of our Lexio episodes. The Christmas Mass has different masses for the time of day um, that mm. are specific to the time of day. So you have mm -hmm. the vigil mass mm -hmm. that has its own readings and its own prayers. And then you have the mass during the night or what people often call the midnight mass that also has its own readings and prayers Then the mass at dawn and then the mass during the day. So there are four different sets of prayers and readings for mass for Christmas, for the one solemnity, which is really cool. Why do I bring that up as by way of preparation? Well, um, Christmas is hectic and crazy and all of those things, but it might be worth Mm. attending or trying to schedule uh trying to arrange your schedule so as attend so as to attend one of those four that you haven't before or more than you know the vigil and the morning mass or the mass at dawn and the midnight mass you know just to sort of experience uh the liturgical worship in a different way um so i guess that's less of like what to do now but for kind of looking at your schedule and trying to take advantage of the way by which the church draws us into this great solemnity and into the mystery. So that's one yeah, thing I didn't, I, really, like, I was just going to say really growing up, I never knew mm -hmm. that that was the case, you know? So, yeah. 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 And I think a lot of people go the, the most, in most parishes, the most popular Christmas mass is the earliest vigil mass on Christmas Eve. Right. It's like the, the, you know, in my home parish, there was one at three, I think maybe even, but like the three, four 5 PM vigil on Christmas Eve, um, oftentimes those are kids masses and you hear the gospel for that day, which is the genealogy of Jesus. And so you walk away from the Christmas mass without hearing the nativity story, which is reserved for the other masses for uh, midnight mass or the masses of Christmas day, like you're pointing out. 
Um, so that that's a really that's a really beautiful suggestion. Yeah, just to read the Gospels for the different masses of Christmas. I would say if you're looking for something to do in these last days, I would point to the liturgy as well. I would point to uh, the great O antiphons. Mm. Um, our listeners might, might not know what they what those are. Maybe you do know what they are, um, but everyone knows the Christmas Carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and the text for that carol is based on, if not. Uh, is explicitly in some renditions the text of the great O antiphons, and um, so these are these are the verses sung at the beginning of the Magnificat in the days leading up to Christmas. They start on December seventeenth, a day very important for the church because it's Pope Francis' birthday. Uh, so they start on December seventeenth and uh, and go all the way up until Christmas. And so you could pray you could pray that verse. You can find those online, the great O Andafons, or you could just look up the text for uh, the for the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and pray through those very beautiful verses that have a lot of imagery, a lot of uh, a lot of very traditional theological uh, perspective, a lot of um, a lot of uh, nods or hints of Israel's Old Testament, you know, Israel's prophecy, the prophecies of the Old Testament. Um, so you, you get a rich sense of of uh, what what was longed for in the coming Messiah. Yeah, and I so think, that takes, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, if I remember correctly, there is some Catholic website that had a series done by some priest on the Oantifons in the last year or two. So if you're, if you want a little sort of a little Lexio kind of, you know, a few paragraphs on each of the Oantifons starting December 17th through, through up until uh, Christmas Eve, it's out there on the interwebs. So <laughs> in out. fact, it is. Father Jacob's Father Jacob Bertrand's being coy. He wrote a very beautiful series of meditations, actually, for us at Alatea that went mm. up last year. So you could Google O Antiphons Alatea, Father Jacob Bertrand, December seventeenth, and you'd start to find these magnificent reflections. Mm. Maybe we'll repost those. Mm. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so, but that does lead us, you know, the the thinking of the O Antiphons and the longed for expectations of Israel, the the hoped for Messiah. That leads us to the topic of our episode today, which is uh, the Eucharist and the Nativity. And I think we wanted to start, didn't we, Father, um, talking just a little bit about the necessity of the incarnation and what it means for us to say uh, th this phrase, Emmanuel, that God is with us. Yeah. One, I think one of the... Um... One of the things in the in in theology that we talk about um, is is necessity, uh, mm. whether something has to be, uh, you know, for example, does does it have to be the case that what that um, that in this case that Christ becomes man? And now that's that's perhaps not the best example because if we look to the great theologian Saint Thomas Aquinas, he he kind of says yes and no uh, to this. And this is what we're going to talk about for a minute. But uh, th this question of necessity, does something have to be? Is it necessary that I exist? Well, in one sense, no. You know, God doesn't need me to exist. I'm not required to exist. But in another sense, mm -hmm. we could say, um, yes, in as much as I do exist. Um, is it necessary that I'm sitting down right now in my chair uh, as we're recording this episode? In one sense, no, I could be standing, but in as much as in this moment I'm sitting, there's a sort of necessary kind of reality to me sitting because it's a true statement. But when we talk about necessity, we can also say things, well, no, things aren't necessary, but they're fitting. They make sense. And this is where, in some ways, the, the incarnation and even the sacraments 
uh, and the Eucharist, we're talking about the nativity, the incarnation and the sacraments, uh, begin to take shape. So St. Thomas Aquinas asked the question, you know, is it necessary that Christ becomes man? Is it necessary that he takes on human flesh, that the incarnation happens? Um, in one sense, we could say, yes. Well, why? Well, because he did, because he chose to, because he's God and he chose to. So this, this harkens immediately, at least in my mind, to the beginning of the Gospel of John, and the word became flesh and dealt among us. That's a declarative mm -hmm. statement. You know, it mm -hmm. happened. Um, mm -hmm. But is it necessary in the grand scheme of life or in the grand scheme of the eschaton, you know, or to phrase the question differently, does God have to become man to save us? Well, according to Thomas, no, he could have done it differently. So it, he was God. He could have saved us however he chose to. Um, so the question then is, well, why? You know, why does, why does Christ become man? Why does Christ become, you know, why is Christ born of a virgin? Well, there we're, now we're going to talk about things of fittingness. Um, and one of the primary ways by which um, we, we understand the incarnation, Christ's humanity, Christ becoming man as fitting, as making sense, as is, is that he becomes man so as to be an example in many ways, but an example for us so that God is accessible to us. And I think here, this, this takes us outside of Advent and Christmas, but at least helps understand a bit, but we can think of, of and this is more of a, a classic Lenten image, but of the temptation that Christ faces in the desert at the beginning of Lent. Well, Christ mm. doesn't need to be tempted, but he's tempted so as to lead us, you know, um, by way of example, to conquer temptation and sin and the devil. Why is Christ baptized? Well, he doesn't need to be baptized. He's God. But, you know, to, to sanctify the waters of baptism, but to, to lead us and be that example. So that's just one way to start thinking, like, why, why the incarnation reasons for the incarnation? I don't know if you have other thoughts or comments on that. Yeah, Patrick. I think that's right. Because when you, when you flesh it out, uh, it, it, what, it, what it allows us to see is just how radically God loves us, right? You start, you start in what, what, what begins as a kind of logic puzzle. And what you walk away with is this understanding of God's extraordinary compassion, right? Um, so for, you know, for, for things that are necessary about God, we can point to uh, basically all of the divine attributes. You can point mm -hmm. to God's knowledge and you can say, is it, is it necessary that God would be omniscient? Yes, because otherwise there would be something smarter than God, right? Uh, is it necessary that God would be omnipotent? Yes, because otherwise there would be something more powerful than God. So those are, those are things that are necessary about God. Um, they, they belong to the definition of God. Without them, God is less God. Um, but is God, is God less God because of the incarnation? Well, not strictly speaking. And that's where that's where we get where we move into as you were as you were pointing out, Father, um, the the arguments of fittingness. We can then say, well, it, it, it seems fitting that God would do that. Uh, and so here again, we could turn to Thomas Aquinas as you did with uh, asking, well, is the incarnation necessary? Saint Thomas says no, but he does say that the incarnation is particularly fitting. Uh, so uh, maybe do you want to walk us through those arguments? Yeah. The so for the the fittingness of the of the incarnation. Um, well, there, I think we can look back and we could look forward. So looking back mm -hmm. and, and looking back is, and in both of these ways, we'll talk about these more specifically as the episode goes on, 
but in, in in many ways, looking back, what I mean is looking back specifically to to um, the establishment of the Israelite community as the chosen people and the prophets, um, the prophecy of the prophets. Uh, mm. This and it, we don't want a proof text here. Like that's never a good way to use scripture, just to pull out a line out of context from the rest of the book or from you know the sort of setting, historical setting, these sort of things, and just say, oh, this proves whatever, just one line in isolation. But the, the, the prophets really become clear in light of the incarnation. Prophecy right. begins right. to make sense in a full way because of the incarnation. So if you think of the readings that we've been having during the Advent season, uh, we get a lot of this Old Testament prophecy from, especially from Isaiah. Um, we, I think we get a bit from, I'm trying to think who else, Micah we read a bit from, I think Daniel as well, uh, that, that uh, foreshadow uh, the birth of of a firstborn son from a virgin, that foreshadow the coming of a savior, that foreshadow, you know, the, this time of peace, this prince of peace, those things, I mean, they kind of give a sort of imagery of a savior coming, but they don't, they, they be, make more sense in the context of the arrival of Christ. Um, and we see theology worked out this way. So that's one way by looking back, but also we could say kind of looking forward, right? That the incarnation makes sense because because of those prophecies, we, we're promised a savior and we're promised to be saved uh, through this savior in particular ways um, that come to light in Christ's lifetime. So we can think here of, and this leads more specifically into the topic of this, this episode, like the, the Eucharistic um, teachings of Christ in the New Testament. Uh, we can think of Christ uh, foreshadowing his death on the cross and then actually the crucifixion. But these are all nascent in uh, in the nativity, in the reasons for the incarnation, and connected with with the prophecy and and the ideas of sacrifice and the firstborn and and all of these. So you see, as we begin, especially reading through the lens of the church fathers and and their understanding, we see how this this fittingness in a in a sort of scriptural way, just one way to look at it, begins to to make sense. And Aquinas goes into this too of of speaking about the fulfillment of prophecy and the fulfillment of sacrifice and, 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 and those sort of things. Yeah. I, the, the language that I really like that he uses is that it's fitting that God makes what was hidden visible. Right. And uh, that, and that's, that's just another way of articulating what you're saying about the prophecies uh, that through, through prophecy, we come to understand God more clearly. The prophets of Israel point us to truths about God. We may not otherwise have known. Um, And, in the incarnation, truths about God become visible to us. They're placed right in front of our face because God, because God is right in front of our face, um, because God is God is uh, taken flesh, because God is made visible, literally. So the hidden, created wisdom of God, um, the, you know, the excuse me, the hidden, uncreated wisdom of God becomes visible uh, and takes the form of creation. Um, and in that and in that way becomes very close to us. Yeah, and I think just to make a point too, and and draw this into the to the Eucharist, there there's um, perhaps just more with the sacraments generally, as you were saying, Father Patrick, that there's that there's a sort of uh, revelation in Christ Himself, um, that Christ Himself is the fullness of revelation. We we get this this imagery with the idea of like Christ is is the the the, the sun rising in the east, the new dawn, the light of the world. Um, he, he becomes clear, you know, what is, what is hidden becomes clear and, and given to us in a direct way now. 
that that mm -hmm. Christ, the second person of the Trinity becomes man so as to unite and relate to us directly. I mean, so too with the sacraments, that the sacraments are given to us as physical, tangible realities that we can access easily. You know, there, there's nothing complicated about baptism. There's nothing complicated about bread and wine. There's nothing complicated about using oil. Now, there are huge mysteries that happen and <laughs> incredibly efficacious realities that take place through these instruments. But the, the fact is, is that there, there's, an ex, there's the, the concept of, of accessibility that God, like you were saying, God, the, the, the reality that God wants to be with us, wants to share his mercy and wants to give us ready access to that is, is on full display in the nativity and in, in the reality of, of the sacraments and how the church dispenses those graces. And that, that relationship is, is, you know, you can't separate that. That's, that's essentially linked together. That is a chef's kiss to set up <laughs> for the second part of our episode. So with that, we're going to pause. You know, I'm just going to leave you hanging for a couple of moments as we take a short break. And when we get right back with you, we'll explain why the nativity makes it's so evident, so obvious uh, how God is at work. So hang in there. We'll be right back with you. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. Hello, friends. You're listening to God's Planning. Um, welcome back. Uh, in the first part of the episode, we were talking about the nature of the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, uh, and discussing its necessity, which St. Thomas would say is uh, that it's not necessary. Discussing its fittingness. There, we can emphasize that. that St. Thomas says it's very fitting that God would take flesh and become incarnate. That's what we mean when we say incarnation, right? We're talking about the taking flesh of God. Uh, the mystery, the great mystery of the incarnation. But our argument is that all of this leads to something really incredible, a very, a very powerful, very profound closeness with God in the mystery of the nativity. And that the mystery of the nativity is connected in a very direct way uh, to the sacrament of the Eucharist. And um, so we have an idea, right, that, that the Eucharist is the real presence of God, that it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, um, that, that God is truly there. And when we consume the Holy Eucharist, uh, God comes to us in a in a radical way, um, and we can see all of these foreshadowings in uh, in the mysteries of the Eucharist. So let's start there, uh, Father Jacob Bertrand. What's the first thing that comes to mind when uh, we raise the Eucharistic imagery that's present in the Nativity? Yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to make a comment that's not answering your question directly, but then I will answer Perfect. your question directly because. When we were on our break, I was thinking, and we, because we talked about, and you were introducing this idea of, or reintroducing, reminding our listeners, this idea of necessity and fittingness. And one thing I think sometimes when I first was learning about this, that fitting doesn't mean like God didn't do his best or could have been otherwise, but it's important to recognize that, that when Thomas talks about like the incarnation and the Eucharist being fitting, he, he also says that it's the most perfect way to do it. It's just that God's mm, not obligated right. to do it in that way. Yeah, um, that's a great So there's a perfection here in, in the incarnation. There's a perfection in the Eucharistic. It's, it's the best way that we can access our Lord. Uh, you know, yeah, again, that was really important. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad for this Gregory Pine moment where we change the subject entirely and talk about something <laughs> else. Uh, so, but because that was really important. 
Yeah. And, and just to, again, to your point that you made at the top of the episode, that God wants to share his life, wants to offer his compassion and mercy, and he does so perfectly. So there you have it. But back to the nativity. Back to the nativity. Uh, so a few things, I think if we, if we just look at, perhaps at, at St. Luke's account of, uh, of the nativity, um, there are, there are, I think, three classic things that we could, like if, if you were telling, if I said to you, hey, tell somebody, tell this person, about the the story of the nativity of christmas um christmas night uh there are you know three things that stand out that i think we could probably all pick out really quickly and identify they'd be part of our stories and 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 describing what happened in the stable um mm -hmm. and how christ was and those three i would i'll lay out and then we can talk about them but th that our lord was wrapped in swaddling clothes so we all can recognize that you know mary wrapped him and held him and our, Mary, it, it's described, Mary's action is described, the angels repeat this, um, that he was laid in a manger, manger is repeated three times, and, and that he was laid in a manger, um, the, what Mary did, the angels to the shepherds, and again, when the shepherds arrive, and then that, that it's Mary's giving birth, obviously, but to her firstborn son. So these three things, but these three things are also uh, super Eucharistic, if we look at them. So let's look at the first, the swaddling clothes. Um, yeah, we, I guess what, the a swaddling clothes, I've never, well, I was, was going to say I've never wrapped a child in swaddling clothes, but uh, I have seen, I, I kind of imagine it like, um, you know, I, I've seen like videos of like, you know, those when kids sleep and they're like in those wraps, those sleep sacks. Wraps and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then like you unwrap My them sisters and they're like, use them. and they're like arms spring open and they kind of like stretch. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, wrapping, obviously we all know what it means to like wrap a baby to sleep, but um, the fathers of the church do look at this, at this repeated phrase that Mary does it. And then the angels identify Christ by this. So it's, our attention is drawn to it. The fathers of the church identify, uh, the swaddling clothes of the nativity as a prefigurement of Christ's, um, burial cloths, right? That Christ is, is wrapped in, in these bandages of sort, you know, these swaddling clothes in a manger it probably wasn't terribly, you know, beautiful and clean and that sort of thing. But as a prefigurement of of the those those cloths that wrap our Lord's body when he's placed in the tomb, um, which are also, you know, he's not only wrapped in the tomb, but those those burial cloths are are left in the tomb as a sign of the resurrection when 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 the disciples arrive at the tomb. Um, so we should that shouldn't be lost on us, that link. Um, and, and that link is that from the beginning, Christ is seen as a sacrificial victim. His, his death is foreshadowed. Um, I, don't, I don't think this has to be, this isn't a sort of like pious kind of connecting the dots, but we, we see how it's repeated uh, through, through the New Testament and through the account of Christ's life, but it begins here. So as to, even in the beauty and the silence and the quiet and the cold of, of, the, of the Christmas night, we, we're, what Christ's purpose is not lost, why he's come is not lost, even in just how he's dressed, which I think is incredible. I think that's a that's a really awesome thing to think of this sacrificial victim um, that is then represented in the Eucharist on the altar. It's, it starts even just how Christ is wrapped. Yeah, it's, re it's a really fantastic thing. And uh, I liked your point that you're saying that the, the cloths are important because they have a kind of function of evidence. So in the tomb, they're the evidence for the resurrection. And here in the manger, they're the evidence that this is a real child, that he's a child like every other child, and he needs what every other child needs. 
he needs to be fed, uh, he needs to be changed, and he needs to be he needs to be wrapped in in, in these clothes and and held as all babies were. Uh, so there's a the, right away, you know, in this reference, um, we we see the the, re the reality of everything at stake that this is a true baby. And uh, when we look forward to the resurrection, we see that that was a true event, and that and that the cloths of both the swaddling clothes of the manger and the cloth, the burial cloths of the tomb, that the cloths are a kind of evidence of God at work in these two moments. Yeah, and that point is exactly right. That that it, it shows Christ's humanity that he's a true God, but also true man even in his, even in, as, as a newborn, that it, this isn't, uh, some sort of, sort of like flesh illusion over, you know, over God. So, um, a little thing there to, to pay attention to the swaddling, swaddling clothes. Connect. Yeah. Connected to the Eucharist, um, you know, taking, taking this idea, right. That, uh, that when we receive Christ in the Eucharist, we receive Christ who suffered, died, rose, and ascended to the Father, and we receive Christ in the in the fullness of the Paschal mystery. Uh, it, that that mystery is presented to us rather uh, in in a really uh, extraordinary way in the Eucharist. Um, we see this connected in just a very small way in the liturgy, right? We use white linens, these little cloths, um, as our, our as priests um, care for the Eucharist, right? We have our white purificators, we have the white corporal, um, and they're and they're bound up in this mystery. The cloths we use in the liturgy are connected the little signs of these other claws that are part of the mystery, the direct mystery of Christ's life. So there's a nice connection there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now uh, we, you, you presented a second point to us, um, the manger. So let's, let's turn to that now. How is the yeah. manger seen? How is the manger to be seen in connection to the Eucharist? Yeah. Twofold. I mean, related, but two, two points. So um, really around, you know, well, what is a manger? Um, I think we think like when when I look at the crash that my mother placed under our our tree, the manger is like it, it, as a kid, you don't think anything of it because you're just used to seeing Jesus in it. So it looks like a little cradle, you know, a little bassinet type mm -hmm. thing. But really, mm -hmm. as as I'm sure we know, the, you know, the manger is is a food trough for animals. Um, St. Augustine shows or at least he he kind of pulls out this idea or makes this idea present that that the manger is a place where animals find their food. That's that's what it is. It's never ever used to lay a baby in. You know, it's it's a place to put f food slop for animals. And Christ, this should be seen as Christ being laid in this manger is is you know Christ the true bread from heaven, the true nourishment is laid out to be eaten, to be consumed. It's kind of a, a strange image to think of, you know, with that a newborn baby's put out to be eaten. But that's the setting in which he's placed and other other fathers or other th theologians also link the manger then to the altar, a sort of prefigurement of the altar. And why? Well, if Christ is the sacrifice um, and he's laid out in, you know, to be eaten, then the manger has some sort of altar kind of uh, or altar kind of imagery, but also as as the um, as the firstborn. And we're going to talk about this in a second, but as the firstborn, thinking back to the Passover, the sacrifice of the firstborn. Um, the, the offering of the firstborn, we also can see this as like an altar of sacrifice of the firstborn. So the manger um, has this food connotation. We can even say like a prefigurement of John 6, of the bread of life discourse. 
Um, you know, our Lord didn't say, well, I was a born in, born in a manger, so you should have gotten that in John 6. You know, he doesn't. But we, we can see, again, a sort of prophetic reality uh, of what's to come simply by what's happening here. It's kind of a, a really visceral kind of uh, right. kind of uh, image, I think. Right. That, that seems like underlined, highlighted, and you know, pointed to in the illustration that Jesus' birth takes place at Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. Mm. That this child was born in the city named for food and is placed in the manger as if he were food. Uh, and all, all of this points to the, the work that he the work that he has come to do to save us and to give himself to us uh, for our nourishment. But let's 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 turn now to this last point, as you said, um, because it's so important in the in the context of Israel's history um, that Jesus is the firstborn son. Yeah. Yeah, this is pointed out by by Luke um, in 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 this infancy narrative or this nativity narrative, and it's um, you know theologians point out the fact that like firstborn here is not um, I mean it signifies the first in a series he's Mary's first son, but it's it's more of a theological signification than it is a just sort of oh he's the eldest child um, because it it harkens back to um to the to the to the formation of the israelite of the jewish law um in two ways first to the passover um that the firstborn are are slain there's a sacrifice of the firstborn uh but more explicitly to the consecration of the firstborn that the israelites are commanded to do in exodus 13 um that everybody every every firstborn whether man or beast has to be consecrated to the lord uh in this we can is very clear uh, anticipation of, of Christ's presentation in the temple. This is why Christ is presented in, t- in the temple, um, why Simeon and Anna praise Christ in the temple. You know, there's, there's this real reality, but that the firstborn is seen as one to be sacrificed, one to be given wholly over to God. Um, so that that reality also ought not be lost on the, on the fact that Christ comes to sacrifice his life uh, on the cross. Um, obviously, the, the the crucified imagery isn't, you know, in Exodus 13, but certainly the sacrificial reality and nature is is foreshadowed. Right. He is our Passover. Christ is the is the lamb once slain um, who saves all. It, uh, for that reason, I think it's incredible, too, that, that, that the animals that are present there in Luke's account um, are sheep, that there are shepherds watching their mm-hmm. flocks and the sheep come. And the sheep are there, uh, at, present in the manger. Another sign of Christ as the firstborn, um, the the Paschal Lamb, the one who is, the one whose sacrifice frees us from our sins. Um, the just the the fact that there are sheep there, you know, it's not just. It's easy to think that it's just a charming thing, but this great detail points us to the the mystery of God's covenant with Israel and to to the Lord's fulfillment of it. Uh, walking away from this, Father Jacob Bertrand, what are the best ways to? appreciate um the eucharist at christmas yeah i think it, i i imagine in most churches that people that you all are going to go to for for mass on christmas there'll be a, a crash a manger scene laid out and i think um though they're off they're, they're beautiful to have i mean but they're not just decoration in the sense in the same way that like a christmas tree is or like wreaths or stockings you know these these sort of things the the crash ought to remind us of of what is before us in the same way we were talking about earlier that you know what has come looking to the past to the historical reality of the nativity of christ being born but also the present reality of christ 
being represented on the very altar in the church. Um, so the, I think, you know, take perhaps look at the manger scene anew with these kind of points and these things and, and offer them as a sort of meditation um, and, and a way by which to be more drawn into the mystery of the nativity um, and into what the Lord is calling calling us through his becoming, you know, a tiny Christ child. Uh, we, we should, the whole, one of the beautiful things about our about our, our faith and especially the physicality of like our churches and stuff is that they're meant to lead us into the mystery. Um, so I guess I don't mean this in a sort of objectifying way, but use those, use those tools, use those helps to be drawn into the mystery of what's happening before on the altar. Amen. If you like this episode, um, please share it with a family member or a friend, post about it on social media. We're so grateful to all of you who support us, um, who donate to us via Patreon. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter and give us a little Christmas gift, we'd be very grateful. Um, Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, Know first and foremost, though, of our prayers for you, our gratitude. Um, We produce the podcast because people tell us that that it helps them and that that means something to us right as members of the order of preachers this is our vocation so for us this is uh this is the work that we feel called to by god um so thank you for supporting it for encouraging it um and we're happy for uh all of the times where you have told us that uh that our efforts are bearing fruit in your lives know of our prayers for you and have a blessed christmas thanks for listening to god's planning a work of the dominican friars of the province of saint joseph Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.